0: On September 24th, Truthout reported that a new Virginia Department of Corrections policy would prohibit visitors to Virginia prisons from using tampons or menstrual cups because the use of such hygiene products was what the department called "quote an ideal way to conceal contraband." Unquote. The response was a public outcry, and the department announced on September 25th that the ban would be suspended immediately pending further review. The ACLU of Virginia applauded the suspension, but noted that it's possible the policy will be implemented at a later date. The ACLU called the policy, quote, demeaning, inhumane, absurd, cruel and degrading, unquote, and called for the policy to be dropped permanently. The department had declared that if body scanner machines detected a foreign object that could possibly be a tampon and the visitor in question had failed to remove it, the visitor would have her visitation terminated for the day and have her visitation privileges reviewed. The Florida Department of Corrections has prohibited inmates from receiving the monthly magazine prison legal news since 2009. Attorneys for the magazine have taken their First Amendment lawsuit to the Supreme Court, arguing that corrections officials are unjustly barring prisoners from accessing the publication. Lower courts and the Florida Department of Corrections say the magazine poses a safety risk, but the magazine's attorneys call the concept censorship and a violation of First Amendment rights to free speech and a free press. Florida corrections officials insist the magazine contains ads for prohibited services, including three-way calling and pen pal solicitation. They say, quote, those ads not only tempt inmates to violate the rules and commit crimes, but also enable them to do so, unquote. Only in Florida prisons is prison legal news officially banned, but it has encountered blocks in other places. Last year, officials in Michigan were ordered to repay prison legal news's legal fees after a jail refused to deliver the magazine to inmates. This week's episode focuses on the situation in the Midwest. We hear from Ben and Aaron, who each work on supporting prisoners in Indiana and Ohio. Ben gives us more information about those Ohio prisoners who are still facing repercussions from the 1993 Lucasville uprising. We've spoken of Lucasville in previous episodes of KiteLine, including an early episode focusing on the case of Bamani Shakur and ongoing updates on the situation of Sadiq Hassan. Ben walks us through some of the details of others involved in the uprising and makes the case for amnesty for those prisoners, who are all still facing retaliation from the state for alleged involvement in the uprising 24 years ago. Aaron then gives us an overview of the increasing restrictions on communication that prisoners in Indiana are facing. As evidenced in their talk, fighting against the prison system is a difficult and nearly impossible battle on a legal level, and in order to win it, it must be on a political one.
1: They indicted 40 people after the uprising there are a handful on death row, three for allegedly conspiring to kill the hostage guard, one for other murders that occurred later on in the uprising, and then the the fifth one, he surrendered the first night of the uprising. He didn't want to have anything to do with it, but they, because he refused to cooperate and advocated that other prisoners not cooperate, they targeted him and said that he was the leader of a death squad that kind of spontaneously formed and killed all the snitches in the first minutes of the uprising, apparently. I don't know how they can make that claim, but they have successfully um, argued that claim in court um, by denying evidence to the defense counsel and kind of railroading him in an all-white jury in southern Ohio. Uh, His name is Keith Lamar. He also goes by Beaumont Shakur. And his case of the death penalty cases is the most advanced. So one of the three things that I'm really trying to connect people with is uh, his case. He had uh, a final appeal. Um, we packed the courthouse. His case seems really clear. Like the evidence that that the prosecutors gave to the defense counsel um, was like a list of names uh, that that supposedly witnessed things, and then a list of statements, and they had to play mix and match in order to make them connect. And that's never happened in any like lawyers are like what the heck is that the judges on the panel were like what the heck is that you, this is not how you do a prosecution properly and yet those judges allowed his case to advance and they allowed him to go and now he is facing an execution date that was his last federal appeal the prosecutor just earlier on monday filed for him to get an execution date it's been probably over a year a couple years since that last hearing that he's just been kind of in limbo now i think not coincidentally on the heels of the nationwide strike they are uh requesting an execution date for him his lawyers are going to fight that and uh uh but if it does go through it's likely that that date will be set for sometime in 2023 um, so that is going to be something really important to mobilize around and to build strength and uh, power to stop that from happening. He is a good friend of mine and a really powerful speaker and deep thinker and writer. His book, uh, Condemned, which is about his experience, really gets into the heart and the, uh, on a deeper level of what the prison system and the criminal legal system can do to people so I I highly recommend that. There's also a 30-minute documentary about him. He generally is not an organizer. He is looking at the system as something that is going to kill him and that he can't beat, and so he wants to try to live his life uh, to the best that he can, and those are the choices that he makes in the situation he's in. He's been in solitary confinement since 1993, so have a number of the other prisoners. He is managing to hold on to his life despite those circumstances. Hassan is the Sunni Imam who kind of organized the protests that blew up and became the Lucasville Uprising, um, and so he's mainly in the crosshairs of the state. Unlike Bomani, he is interested in fighting every single fight he can. He was an outspoken advocate for the nationwide strike in 2016. Um, since I first met him in 2011, he'd been advocating for nationwide strikes, and so he is continuously in trouble with uh, the prison authorities because they don't like prisoners to you know, have free speech or ideas and opinions or uh, let, let alone organize nationwide prison work stoppages. <laughs> and so he, uh, but this year they came harder for him than they have in the past. And so that's the second thing I'm uh, hoping to kind of mobilize people around. Uh, he was taken before a serious misconduct panel and charged with rioting even though no riot occurred uh, charged with leading a work stoppage and with improper use of the phone um, and email system he's already at the supermax prison under the worst conditions that they can do to a person on death row fighting his case and so the consequence that they put on him is a one-year phone restriction and increased security level that are going to prevent him from getting visits and uh, getting contact on visits. Uh, When I first met them in January 2011, it was after they went on a hunger strike where after 19 years where the only contact they had with other human beings was guards putting cuffs on them. They won a little window in the bulletproof glass so that they could actually hold someone's hand or uh, we could pass vending machine food and they could share a meal together. So he he has lost that possibly indefinitely, um, and he's definitely lost the phone for a limit of a year unless we fight and get it back to him. He's a diligent, continuous organizer. He calls uh, people every single day and is always making connections. I've talked to like Elaine Brown through him, a number of other uh, like national political figures that he's able to connect with. Chris Hedges wrote a really great article about him called We Kill Our Revolutionaries uh, that I'd recommend everybody read. We are at a situation where the serious misconduct panel had a number of procedural flaws, uh, including that the guy who wrote the conduct report is also the same person who makes the decision on the outcome of the conduct report. So it's a closed loop and it's, there's no due process there. Um, they didn't allow any of his witnesses to speak. Uh, they said that they were either unavailable, uh, not relevant, or a security risk. I was relevant because I was named in the conduct report. All of this stemmed from me sending him information about the strike, which they intercepted, so he didn't even get to read the stuff that they're, they're punishing him for. Um, so I was, I was obviously relevant, and uh, I was available because I was calling the prison and asking, how can I get through to call and be... You know, a witness in this so apparently me talking to them about the incident that they're railroading my friend for is a security threat and that's uh, how insecure the uh, prison authorities are his appeal of that is going to come due for a decision um, we're hoping to build pressure and possibly an event in um, Columbus at central office uh, and just kind of get media attention so anything that you can do to generate media attention um, and call-ins to the prison can help with that situation. The phone restriction will also be reviewed every three months. So if the his appeal is rejected and the decision stands, which also, you know, we're used to appeals being rubber-stamped, but I think that a big part of the motivation was to silence him during the strike. And so now that the strike is over, they might be willing to not deal with the hassle of going through with this, especially if we make it a hassle for them. So it seems winnable to me. But if that doesn't happen, then there'll be a three month review and a six month review and a nine month review. And each of those times are opportunities to get him back to having access to the phone, Uh, which is really important to him, both as an organizer. So it's important to the entire movement, but also just like his human connections uh, as he struggles with solitary confinement in a supermax prison. Um, The third situation that I wanna talk about is Greg Curry. Uh, Greg is, uh, was, also indicted and convicted after the uprising on similar charges to Bomani, He didn't go, even go into the cell block while the occupation was going on, but because he refused to snitch, they tried to railroad him and they got other people to lie and say that he's the one who was in that death squad that killed people. And the evidence against him is entirely dependent on informant testimony, and the prosecutor and uh, promised the jury and the judge explicitly during his trial that the key witness, Leroy Jones, was not given any kind of a deal. On the first appeal, they admitted that he was given a deal. So his case is totally illegitimate, and he should absolutely get a new case. The trouble is, he, uh, after the uprising, the guards targeted him. He didn't get the death penalty, and so the guards decided that they, it was their responsibility to kill him. They put him in a sweat box cell where the temperatures were well above 100 degrees, and they didn't give him any food. It was other prisoners who smuggled him food, and that's the only reason he didn't die uh, in the weeks and months following the uprising. He defended himself in that situation. Uh, He took a nightstick off a guard and hit the guard with it and broke the guard's collarbone. So they charged him with uh, attempted murder and uh, robbery for taking the nightstick, apparently there were other instances where guards were uh attacking and harassing him and and targeting him and he defended himself so he's caught additional charges so now the innocence project you know will look at his original conviction and say this is baseless we could totally get you you're a very good candidate except if we put this resources in these other charges are still going to keep you in there for the rest of your life um so they they don't do the work um and so that's why it's not a legal solution that can happen in these situations it's a political solution and we have to demand amnesty for all the prisoners these are just three of the stories jason rob and uh, george gates and namir mateen are also on death row uh, and then there's another half dozen or more prisoners that we're in touch with or have been in touch with that that are also serving very long sentences only one of the prisoners who's serving time because of the lucasville uprising has gotten out that's Mosey Packy, um, and that's because he maxed out a sentence. So anybody who's you know going before the parole board is just getting flopped, um, and they're also getting flopped on their security levels. Greg is at OSP. The Supermax has been in solitary confinement since the uprising. They built the Supermax because of the uprising. While they were building it, they put him in solitary confinement, all of these people in solitary confinement in other prisons, and then moved them all to the Supermax. When the Supermax opened, Stoughton and Alice Lind sued it right away with help from prisoners, and they won, and so now it is required that um, you have to consent to being at the Supermax, and how they generally get around that is make the SEG units at other prisons really unbearable, so that people are like, oh, if I go to the Supermax, there's air conditioning and television, and uh, it's more professionally run, and so that's how they fill the facility and you know are able to afford keep running it other than the handful of prisoners who don't have that option because they're deemed you know such a threat and that includes these Lucasville people. Greg is not on death row is not on extended restrictive housing status. He should be in general population. He's over the years worked his way down through the security level stuff and yet he gets special treatment and he is not allowed to have to opt out of being at the supermax. Is, Continuously, Like, they, they've been like, pack your stuff. We're going to get you out of here. You're going to Toledo. And then, oh, no, we changed our mind. You're not. So they're not following the lawsuit. They're not following any of the rules. Um, with the serious misconduct panel against Hessen, they're not following the rules. And so we need to recognize that this is a, a political situation, and we need to demand amnesty, and we need to expose the degree to which Ohio has it out for these guys. I also think this is strategic. Fighting prison systems is incredibly difficult. There's massive need on the inside and there's very limited capacity on the outside and after years of struggling with these things, I look at the situation in Ohio and say if we can humanize these people who they consider the worst of the worst and who they are so dedicated to lynching and win in these cases. Uh, or even if we don't win, but as we tell their stories and humanize them and build support behind them, that delegitimizes the entire prison system in Ohio broadly. And that's why I think it's important to focus with them. There are people working with prisoners across the board in Ohio as well, but I think all of that work will be advanced the more that we can really win in these cases. Because the, the Ohio prison system is very much defined in response to what happened in 1993. They refused to be accountable to it. The The guards sued them. The prisoners sued them. They lost those lawsuits. They settled, which didn't help the prisoners at all. The lawyer who fought it just took his cut and then didn't give a shit about actually enforcing what was won in the suit. But ideologically, Lucasville hangs like a shadow over the state of Ohio. And um, that is how they justify the supermax, all the security restrictions they have, and... Um, everything else that goes on there and so countering that narrative fighting against that uh, feels like a strategic lever to push on
2: the first thing i'd like to say is when i first got started in working around prisons and prisoners it was around lucasville issues around bomani's case and where i really learned a lot uh, about how the prison system works and what defines it and what inmates face and seen a lot of the same types of issues in Indiana. And I guess the way that Lucasville and the way it's defined Ohio prisons, I think you could say a lot of the same things in Indiana when you go back to the early nineties there's sort of, you're, you're talking about a time when the expansion of Supermax prisons had really reached everywhere. The first uh, permanent lockdown unit, which became become like the proto uh, Supermax prison, was in Marion, Illinois. And another one of the uh, first ones was uh, MCC Westville, which is here in Indiana, uh, up north. Back then, there was still a lot of of inside organizing going on, and some of those inmates that were involved in the resistance and things like that are are still in the prisons or have gone back to prison, and are still sort of helping to define the movement right now. We like to spend a lot of time on analyzing the system so it could be uh, uh, thought of in a way that guides our political practice, Uh, like Ben mentioned there are a lot of inmates who have a lot of needs. So one of the biggest difficulties is meeting the needs of all those individual inmates um, for which there is uh, not much resources uh, to to go on and you're constantly facing resistance for doing and then creating a broader mass-based movement that can challenge a system as a whole. So in Indiana, we like to sort of paint a picture for people of, of what, what the whole system looks like and have those political prisoners or politicized prisoners help develop that image for us. And we bring that to people on the outside and help build uh, organizations that can uh, act in solidarity with those inmates and keep building from there. So in Indiana, there uh, are anywhere at any time in the in the DOC between 27,000 to 30,000 inmates, and that's not counting county jails, that's not counting the tens, around 10,000, 15,000 in any given year that are released on probation or parole. And that number itself doesn't give a picture of the actual aggregate of individuals that Uh, go through the prison system every year. Uh, There's tens of thousands of turnover every year as well. So we're talking about a lot of people um, who are caught up in the system. In the popular imagination, we talk about mass incarceration. Obviously, that phrase reflects what we're talking about with that number of inmates. But then we also want to focus on what are we? I like to call it conditions of confinement, which goes beyond the idea of mass incarceration of a lot of people in prison but like what is the actual conditions that these people face in prison and from the most political revolutionary prisoner to an inmate who's just serving a year on a drug charge or whatever it may be it's, it's really bleak and it's only getting worse and in Indiana the rate of acceleration in which it's getting worse has really kicked up the last few years um just last year uh it it came out that uh the the prisons were no longer going to allow uh, a significant amount of correspondence uh, uh, to the inmates to where now if, if you want to write a letter to an inmate you've got to write it on line paper like this uh, it has to be white paper it has to be sent in a white envelope of course the rationale is is alleged trafficking uh in the so they argue that people can dip paper or cardstock in synthetic drugs and send it in, and then somebody can tear that off or what have you. Um, so that's the excuse given, but ultimately there's two motivations for it. And one uh, is, is censorship of, of political literature and things like that, and the, the other uh, rationale uh, is profiteering. So most services – that uh, go to inmates, whether it, it's email, video visits, or or commissary, uh, uh, phone calls, things like that. More and more coming under the monopoly of, of certain corporations. Um, in in Indiana, it was JPay, which is a corporation that uh, handles uh, the books and handles uh, uh, emails through for a lot of states. Now it's going to be Global Tel Link. Um, which was doing the phone service, but now we're responsible for all communications. Uh, And the new move by this company is to basically they're going to replace uh, all modes of communication and give every inmate uh, a tablet, like an iPad, and they'll have to purchase their stamps and and phone calls and and books and things like that um, through those pads so basically it discourages people from coming to the prisons to visit you can't really see people anymore except through a a video screen Um, for people who can get in-person visits the state is slowly rolling out no contact visitation where you know people used to be able to hug and they could hold their hold their kids on their laps and things like that Uh, some states have opted to do things like this as a blanket policy right off the bat. In Indiana, they're trying to slip it in prison by prison, uh, which uh, encourages us to try to resist that in any given prison to prevent it from going further, Um, which we were successful in rolling that back at Indiana State Prison. But since then, it's spread to uh, at least uh, Miami Correctional Facility and just this week, um, Pendleton Correctional Facility. uh, now, in other places, there's not a total ban on no contact visitation, but somewhere like Wabash Valley Correctional Facility, there's, there's very regulated contact. So uh, I used to go in there, and there would be tables and chairs, and people would go, and they could visit uh, visit the inmates like that. Now, there's just chairs, and there's tape on, on the floors, where right at the beginning of the visit, you can give one hug, and then you sit on the, either side of the tape and you can't touch at all after that. And increasingly, uh, even in a place like the county jail here in Monroe County, there's no in-person visits at all. It's through a video screen. Um, so they, they discourage people from coming, which uh, saves them on hiring people to oversee the visitation. But it also encourages people to buy time on their new tablets uh, to have vis- video visits and things like that uh, with their loved ones. Um, so those you know, those are just a few examples of, of the things that they're starting to roll out uh, in the prisons. There is pushback on this that's happening. Um, we at least try to raise awareness that there are political prisoners uh, in Indiana who have been working for a long time to try to to push back on on these policies, but they come under extreme repression. And a lot of them end up in the permanent lockdown units, uh, especially at Wabash Valley Correctional Facility. Uh, Organization that uh, some inmates put together uh, in Indiana called the New African Liberation Collective uh, have been working for the last few years uh, to try to organize a revolutionary political line um, against the prison system. Pretty much everyone involved in that organization is under constant surveillance and repression. Recently, uh, the, its co-founder, uh, Kwame Shakur, whose state name is Michael Joyner, was moved to the SHU, which is the lockdown unit at Wabash Valley. Basically, in that place, you're, you're not allowed any of the uh, amenities that you might get in general population. Uh, it's kept extremely cold keep people in their beds and they're selectively or they're strategically reducing the portion of food that they receive every day. So people are basically losing weight. Um, Most recently, there was a a brief hunger strike at Wabash Valley that was met with immediate um, reprisal by the administration where everyone who decided not to take meals, uh, which is actually their right to do, was written up on grievance reports, but a lot of calls were made to the facility. There was a lot of pressure put on it, and they, they did tear up those disciplinary reports, um, but uh, su- succeeded in pushing back on the hunger strike. Right now, there's a lot of attention on on Indiana State Prison, uh, which is an old Civil War prison uh, in Michigan City, Indiana. It, uh, you know, it's it's, it's got vermin, cockroaches, things like that. Um, it's got all the same problems that the, all the other prisons have, but uh, the quality of the building is much worse. It's basically just an uh, old, rotting bunch of buildings surrounded by a 50-foot wall. Um, but a lot of people have been coming out to push back on, on what they're doing there, on the conditions there. Um, just a few months ago, an inmate uh, burned to death in one of his cells. Um, where the, the guards just didn't respond. Um, by the time they came to his cell, he was already dead. Um, and uh, the other two, at which there's a lot of attention being paid, is, is Pendleton Correctional in, in Wabash Valley. Um, so we're trying to uh, just expose more of what's going on um, get as much information out as we can. It's extremely difficult because of the communication restrictions. Uh, if you all know Victoria Law, um, she, she came to Bloomington uh, earlier this year. She writes a lot about um, women's prisons and women behind bars, but she described the uh, male communication in Indiana as the most dr- draconian in the country, uh, which I, I don't know for sure, but it certainly is pretty draconian. Ben mentions trying to send in materials about the prison strike. Uh, we hold back on doing things like that. One, one of our members, just for receiving information last year about the prison strike, was put in the hole. Um, so they're, they're very restrictive on the mail. So right now, there's possibly still a hunger strike happening at Westville Correctional, which is very near Indiana State Prison same problem with the communication. As we know more, we'll put the information out there.
0: This has been KiteLine. Anyone can reach us via our P.O. Box, KiteLine Radio, P.O. Box 2422, Bloomington, Indiana 47402. We also encourage your feedback. You can email us at KiteLine at WFHB.org. KiteLine is intended as a means of communication between people across prison walls. WFHB, its contributors, or any affiliates airing this program are not responsible for the opinions shared on the show. Please join us every Friday at 5.30 p.m. for more stories, news, and insights about the impact of prison on our community. Thank you for listening.